Hello, and welcome to Family Folktales from the Nashville Public Library. I'm Susan Poulter, a librarian at the Main Library. Today's stories are The Little Hunchback, The Story of the Barber's Fifth Brother, and The Story of the Barber's Sixth Brother. This is Part 7 of our stories from The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. The Little Hunchback In the kingdom of Kashgar, which is, as everybody knows, situated on the frontiers of Great Tartary, there lived long ago a tailor and his wife, who loved each other very much. One day, when the tailor was hard at work, a little hunchback came and sat at the entrance of the shop and began to sing and play his tambourine. The tailor was amused with the antics of the fellow and thought he would take him home to divert his wife. The hunchback, having agreed to his proposal, the tailor closed his shop and they set off together. When they reached the house, they found the table ready laid for supper and in a very few minutes all three were sitting before a beautiful fish, which the tailor's wife had cooked with her own hands. But unluckily, the hunchback happened to swallow a large bone, and in spite of all the tailor and his wife could do to help him, died of suffocation in an instant. Besides being very sorry for the poor man, the tailor and his wife were very much frightened on their own account, for if the police came to hear of it, the worthy couple ran the risk of being thrown into prison for willful murder. In order to prevent this dreadful calamity, they both set about inventing some plan which would throw suspicion on someone else, and at last they made up their minds that they could do no better than select a Jewish doctor who lived close by as the author of the crime. So the tailor picked up the hunchback by his head while his wife took his feet and carried him to the doctor's house. Then they knocked at the door, which opened straight on to a steep staircase. A servant soon appeared, feeling her way down the dark staircase, and inquired what they wanted. "'Tell your master,' said the tailor, "'that we have brought a very sick man for him to cure. And,' he added, holding out some money, "'give him this in advance, so that he may not feel he is wasting his time.' The servant remounted the stairs to give the message to the doctor, and the moment she was out of sight, the tailor and his wife carried the body swiftly after her, propped it up at the top of the staircase, and ran home as fast as their legs could carry them. Now the doctor was so delighted at the news of a patient, for he was young and had not had many of them, that he was transported with joy. "'Get a light!' he called to the servant, and follow me as fast as you can. And rushing out of his room, he ran towards the staircase. There he nearly fell over the body of the hunchback, and without knowing what it was, gave it such a kick that it rolled right to the bottom, and very nearly dragged the doctor after it. A light! A light! he cried again. And when it was brought and he saw what he had done, he was almost beside himself with terror. Holy Moses! he exclaimed, why did I not wait for the light? I have killed the sick man whom they brought me, and if the sacred Esdras does not come to my aid, I am lost. 
It will not be long before I am led to jail as a murderer. Agitated though he was, and with reason, the doctor did not forget to shut the house door, lest some passers-by might chance to see what had happened. He then took up the corpse and carried it into his wife's room, nearly driving her crazy with fright. It is all over with us, she wailed, if we cannot find some means of getting the body out of the house. Once let the sun rise and we can hide it no longer. How were you driven to commit such a terrible crime? Never mind that, returned the doctor. The thing is to find a way out of it. For a long while, the doctor and his wife continued to turn over in their minds a way of escape, but could not find any that seemed good enough. At last the doctor gave it up altogether and resigned himself to bear the penalty of his misfortune. But his wife, who had twice his brains, suddenly exclaimed, I have thought of something. Let us carry the body on the roof of the house and lower it down the chimney of our neighbor, the Muslim. Now, this Muslim was employed by the sultan and furnished his table with oil and butter. Part of his house was occupied by a great storeroom where rats and mice held high level. The doctor jumped at his wife's plan, and they took up the hunchback and passing cords under his armpits, they let him down into the purveyor's bedroom so gently that he really seemed to be leaning against the wall. When they felt he was touching the ground, they drew up the cords and left him. Scarcely had they got back to their own house when the purveyor entered his room. He had spent the evening at a wedding feast and had a lantern in his hand. In the dim light it cast, he was astonished to see a man standing in his chimney. But being naturally courageous, he seized a stick and made straight for the supposed thief. Ah, he cried, so it is you and not the rats and mice who steal my butter. I'll take care that you don't want to come back. So saying, he struck him several hard blows. The corpse fell on the floor, but the man only redoubled his blows, till at length it occurred to him that it was odd that the thief should lie so still and make no resistance. Then, finding he was quite dead, a cold fear took possession of him. Wretch that I am, said he, I have murdered a man. Ah, my revenge has gone too far. Without the help of Allah, I am undone. Cursed be the goods which have led me to my ruin. And he already felt the rope around his neck. But when he had got over the first shock, he began to think of some way out of the difficulty. And seizing the hunchback in his arms, he carried him out into the street, and leaning him against the wall of a shop, he stole back to his own house without once looking behind him. A few minutes before the sun rose, a rich Christian merchant, who supplied the palace with all sorts of necessaries, left his house, after a night of feasting, to go to the bath. Though he was very drunk, he was yet sober enough to know that the dawn was at hand, and that all good Muslims would shortly be going to prayer. So he hastened his steps, lest he should meet someone on his way to the mosque, who, seeing his condition, would send him to prison as a drunkard. In his haste, 
he jostled against the hunchback, who fell heavily upon him. And the merchant, thinking he was being attacked by a thief, knocked him down with one blow of his fist. He then called loudly for help, beating the fallen man all the while. The chief policeman of the quarter came running up and found a Christian ill-treating a Muslim. What are you doing? he asked indignantly. He tried to rob me, replied the merchant, and very nearly choked me. Well, you have had your revenge, said the man, catching hold of his arm. Come, be off with you. As he spoke, he held out his hand to the hunchback to help him up. But the hunchback never moved. Oh, he went on, looking closer. So this is the way a Christian has the impudence to treat a Muslim. And seizing the merchant in a firm grasp, he took him to the inspector of police, who threw him into prison till the judge should be out of bed and ready to attend to his case. All this brought the merchant to his senses, but the more he thought of it, the less he could understand how the hunchback could have died merely from the blows he had received. The merchant was still pondering on this subject when he was summoned before the chief of police and questioned about his crime, which he could not deny. As the hunchback was one of the sultan's private jesters, the chief of police resolved to defer sentence of death until he had consulted his master. He went to the palace to demand an audience and told his story to the sultan, who only answered, There is no pardon for a Christian who kills a Muslim. Do your duty. So the chief of police ordered a gallows to be erected and sent criers to proclaim in every street in the city that a Christian was to be hanged that day for having killed a Muslim. When all was ready, the merchant was brought from prison and led to the foot of the gallows. The executioner knotted the cord firmly round the unfortunate man's neck and was just about to swing him into the air when the sultan's purveyor dashed through the crowd and cried, panting to the hangman, Stop! Stop! Don't be in such a hurry! It was not he who did the murder. It was I! The chief of police, who was present to see that everything was in order, put several questions to the purveyor, who told him the whole story of the death of the hunchback and how he had carried the body to the place where it had been found by the Christian merchant. You are going, he said to the chief of police, to kill an innocent man, for it is impossible that he should have murdered a creature who was dead already. It is bad enough for me to have slain a Muslim without having it on my conscience, that a Christian who is guiltless should suffer through my fault. Now the purveyor's speech had been made in a loud voice, and was heard by all the crowd, and even if he had wished it, the chief of police could not have escaped setting the merchant free. Loose the cords from the Christian's neck, he commanded, turning to the executioner, and hang this man in his place, seeing that by his own confession he is the murderer. The hangman did as he was bid, and tying the cord firmly, when he was stopped by the voice of the Jewish doctor beseeching him to pause, for he had something very important to say. When he had fought his way through the crowd and reached the chief of police. Worshipful sir, he began, this Muslim whom you desire to hang is unworthy of death. 
I alone am guilty. Last night, a man and a woman who were strangers to me knocked at my door, bringing with them a patient for me to cure. The servant opened it, but having no light was hardly able to make out their faces, though she readily agreed to wake me and to hand me the fee for my services. While she was telling me her story, they seemed to have carried the sick man to the top of the staircase and then left him there. I jumped up in a hurry without waiting for a lantern, and in the darkness I fell against something which tumbled headlong down the stairs and never stopped till it reached the bottom. When I examined the body, I found it was quite dead, and the corpse was that of a hunchback Muslim. Terrified at what we had done, my wife and I took the body on the roof and let it down the chimney of our neighbor, the purveyor, whom you were just about to hang. The purveyor, finding him in his room, naturally thought he was a thief and struck him such a blow that the man fell down and lay motionless on the floor. Stooping to examine him and finding him stone dead, the purveyor supposed that the man had died from the blow he had received. But of course, this was a mistake. As you will see from my account, and I only am the murderer. And although I am innocent of any wish to commit a crime, I must suffer for it all the same, or else have the blood of two Muslims on my conscience. Therefore, send away this man, I pray you, and let me take his place, as it is I who am guilty. On hearing the declaration of the Jewish doctor, the chief of police commanded that he should be led to the gallows and the sultan's purveyor go free. The cord was placed around the doctor's neck, and his feet had already ceased to touch the ground when the voice of the tailor was heard beseeching the executioner to pause one moment and to listen to what he had to say. Oh, my lord, he cried, turning to the chief of police, how nearly have you caused the death of three innocent people? But if you will only have the patience to listen to my tale, you shall know who is the real culprit. If someone has to suffer, it must be me. Yesterday at dusk, I was working in my shop with a light heart when the little hunchback, who was more than half drunk, came and sat in the doorway. He sang me several songs, and then I invited him to finish the evening at my house. He accepted my invitation, and we went away together. At supper, I helped him to a slice of fish, but in eating it, a bone stuck in his throat, and in spite of all we could do, he died in a few minutes. We felt deeply sorry for his death, but fearing lest we should be held responsible, we carried the corpse to the house of the Jewish doctor. I knocked and desired the servant to beg her master to come down as fast as possible and see a sick man whom we had brought for him to cure, and in order to hasten his movements, I placed a piece of money in her hand as the doctor's fee. Directly she had disappeared, I dragged the body to the top of the stairs, then hurried away with my wife back to our house. In descending the stairs, the doctor accidentally knocked over the corpse, and finding him dead, believed that he himself was the murderer. But now you know the truth, and set him free, and let me die in his stead. The chief of police and the crowd of spectators were lost in astonishment at the strange events to which the death of the hunchback had given rise. 
Loosen the Jewish doctor, he said to the hangman, and string up the tailor instead, since he has made confession of his crime. Really, one cannot deny that this is a very singular story, and it deserves to be written in letters of gold. The executioner speedily untied the knots which confined the doctor, and was passing the cord round the neck of the tailor, when the sultan of Kashgar, who had missed his jester, happened to make inquiry of his officers as to what had become of him. Sire, replied they, the hunchback, having drunk more than was good for him, escaped from the palace and was seen wandering about the town, where this morning he was found dead. A man was arrested for having caused his death and held in custody till a gallows was erected. At the moment that he was about to suffer punishment, first one man arrived, and then another, each accusing themselves of the murder, and this went on for a long time and at the present instant the chief of police is engaged in questioning a man who declares that he alone is the true assassin. The sultan of Kashgar no sooner heard these words than he ordered an usher to go to the chief of police and to bring all the persons concerned in the hunchback's death together with the corpse that he wished to see once again. The usher hastened on his errand, but was only just in time, for the tailor was positively swinging in the air when his voice fell upon the silence of the crowd, commanding the hangman to cut down the body. The hangman, recognizing the usher as one of the king's servants, cut down the tailor, and the usher, seeing the man was safe, sought the chief of police and gave him the sultan's message. Accordingly, the chief of police at once set out for the palace, taking with him the tailor, the doctor, the purveyor, and the merchant, who bore the dead hunchback on their shoulders. When the procession reached the palace, the chief of police prostrated himself at the feet of the sultan, and related all that he knew of the matter. The sultan was so much struck by the circumstances that he ordered his private historian to write down an exact account of what had passed, so that in the years to come, the miraculous escape of the four men who had thought themselves murderers might never be forgotten. The sultan asked everybody concerned in the hunchback's affair to tell him their stories. Among others was a prating barber, whose tale of one of his brothers follows. The Story of the Barber's Fifth Brother As long as our father lived, Al-Nashar was very idle. Instead of working for his bread, he was not ashamed to ask for it every evening and to support himself next day on what he had received the night before. When our father died, worn out by age, he left only 700 silver drachmas to be divided amongst us, which made 100 for each son. Al-Nashar, who had never possessed so much money in his life, was quite puzzled to know what to do with it. After reflecting upon the matter for some time, he decided to lay it out on glasses, bottles, and things of that sort, which he would buy from a wholesale merchant. Having bought his stock, he next proceeded to look for a small shop in a good position, where he sat down at the open door, 
his wares being piled up in an uncovered basket in front of him, waiting for a customer among the passers-by. In this attitude, he remained seated, his eyes fixed on the basket, but his thoughts far away. Unknown to himself, he began to talk out loud, and a tailor whose shop was next door to his heard quite plainly what he was saying. This basket, said Alnashar to himself, has cost me a hundred drachmas, all that I possess in the world. Now, in selling the contents piece by piece, I shall turn two hundred, and these hundreds I shall again lay out in glass, which will produce four hundred. By this means I shall, in course of time, make four thousand drachmas, which will easily double themselves. When I have got ten thousand, I will give up the glass trade and become a jeweler, and devote all my time to trading in pearls, diamonds, and other precious stones. At last, having all the wealth that heart can desire, I will buy a beautiful country house, with horses and slaves, and then I will lead a merry life and entertain my friends. At my feasts I will send for musicians and dancers from the neighboring town to amuse my guests. In spite of my riches, I shall not, however, give up trade till I have amassed a capital of a hundred thousand drachmas, when, having become a man of much consideration, I shall request the hand of the Grand Vizier's daughter, taking care to inform the worthy father that I have heard favorable reports of her beauty and wit, and that I will pay down on our wedding day three thousand gold pieces. Should the vizier refuse my proposal, which after all is hardly to be expected, I will seize him by the beard and drag him to my house. When I shall have married his daughter, I will give her ten of the best eunuchs that can be found for her service. Then I shall put on my most gorgeous robes, and mounted on a horse with a saddle of fine gold and its trappings blazing with diamonds, followed by a train of slaves— I shall present myself at the house of the Grand Vizier, the people casting down their eyes and bowing low as I pass along. At the foot of the Grand Vizier's staircase I shall dismount, and while my servants stand in a row to right and left, I shall ascend the stairs, and at the head of which the Grand Vizier will be waiting to receive me. He will then embrace me as his son-in-law, and giving me his seat will place himself below me. This being done, as I have every reason to expect, two of my servants will enter, each bearing a purse containing a thousand pieces of gold. One of these I shall present to him, saying, Here are the thousand gold pieces that I offered for your daughter's hand, and here, I shall continue, holding out the second purse, are another thousand to show you that I am a man who is better than his word. After hearing of such generosity— the world will talk of nothing else. I shall return home with the same pomp as I set out, and my wife will send an officer to compliment me on my visit to her father, and I shall confer on the officer the honor of a rich dress and a handsome gift. Should she send one to me, I shall refuse it and dismiss the bearer. 
I shall never allow my wife to leave her rooms on any pretext whatever without my permission, and my visits to her will be marked by all the ceremony calculated to inspire respect. No establishment will be better ordered than mine, and I shall take care always to be dressed in a manner suitable to my position. In the evening, when we retire to our apartments, I shall sit in the place of honor, where I shall assume a grand demeanor and speak little, gazing straight before me. And when my life, lovely as the full moon, stands humbly in front of my chair, I shall pretend not to see her. Then her women will say to me, Respected lord and master, your wife and slave is before you waiting to be noticed. She is mortified that you never deign to look her way. She is tired of standing so long. Beg her, we pray you, to be seated. Of course, I shall give no signs of even hearing this speech, which will vex them mightily. They will throw themselves at my feet with lamentations, and at length I will raise my head and throw a careless glance at her. Then I shall go back to my former attitude. The women will think that I am displeased at my wife's dress, and will lead her away to put on a finer one, and I, on my side, shall replace the one I am wearing with another yet more splendid. They will then return to the charge, but this time it will take much longer before they persuade me even to look at my wife. It is as well to begin on my wedding day as I mean to go on for the rest of our lives. The next day she will complain to her mother of the way she has been treated, which will fill my heart with joy. Her mother will come seek me, and kissing my hands with respect will say, My lord, for she could not dare to risk my anger by using the familiar title of son-in-law, My lord, do not, I implore you, refuse to look upon my daughter or to approach her. She only lives to please you, and loves you with all her soul. But I shall pay no more heed to my mother-in-law's words than I did to those of the women. Again she will beseech me to listen to her entreaties, throwing herself this time at my feet, but all to no purpose. Then, putting a glass of wine into my wife's hand, she will say to her, There, present that to him yourself. He cannot have the cruelty to reject anything offered by so beautiful a hand. And my wife will take it and offer it to me tremblingly, with tears in her eyes. But I shall look in the other direction. This will cause her to weep still more, and she will hold out the glass, crying, Adorable husband, never shall I cease my prayers till you have done me the favor to drink. Sick of her importunities, these words will goad me to fury. I shall dart an angry look at her and give her a sharp blow on the cheek, at the same time giving her a kick so violent that she will stagger across the room and fall onto the sofa. My brother, pursued the barber, was so much absorbed in his dreams that he actually did give a kick with his foot, which unluckily hit the basket of glass. It fell into the street and was instantly broken into a thousand pieces. His neighbor, the tailor, who had been listening to his visions, 
broke into a loud fit of laughter as he saw this sight. Wretched man, he cried, you ought to die of shame at behaving so to a young wife who has done nothing to you. You must be a brute for her tears and prayers not to touch your heart. If I were the Grand Vizier, I would order you a hundred blows from a bullock whip and would have you led round the town accompanied by a herald who should proclaim your crimes. The accident, so fatal to all his prophets, had restored my brother to his senses, and seeing that the mischief had been caused by his own insufferable pride, he rent his clothes and tore his hair, and lamented himself so loudly that the passers-by stopped to listen. It was a Friday, so these were more numerous than usual. Some pitied Al-Nashar, others only laughed at him, but the vanity which had gone to his head had disappeared with his basket of glass, and he was loudly bewailing his folly when a lady, evidently a person of consideration, rode by on a mule. She stopped and inquired what was the matter, and why the man wept. They told her that he was a poor man who had laid out all his money on this basket of glass, which was now broken. On hearing the cause of these loud wails, the lady turned to her attendant and said to him, Give him whatever you have got with you. The man obeyed, and placed in my brother's hands a purse containing five hundred pieces of gold. Alnashar almost died of joy on receiving it. He blessed the lady a thousand times, and shutting up his shop where he had no longer anything to do, he returned home. He was still absorbed in contemplating his good fortune, when a knock came to his door, and on opening it, he found an old woman standing outside. My son, she said, I have a favor to ask of you. It is the hour of prayer, and I have not yet washed myself. Let me, I beg you, enter your house, and give me water. My brother, although the old woman was a stranger to him, did not hesitate to do as she wished. He gave her a vessel of water, and then went back to his place and his thoughts, with his mind busy over his last adventure, and he put his gold into a long and narrow purse, which he could easily carry in his belt. During this time, the old woman was busy over her prayers, and when she had finished, she came and prostrated herself twice before my brother, and then rising, called down endless blessings on his head. Observing her shabby clothes, my brother thought that her gratitude was in reality a hint that he should give her some money to buy some new ones, so he held out two pieces of gold. The old woman started back in surprise as if she had received an insult. Good heavens, she exclaimed, what is the meaning of this? Is it possible that you take me, my lord, for one of those miserable creatures who force their way into houses to beg for alms? Take back your money. I am thankful to say I do not need it, for I belong to a beautiful lady who is very rich and gives me everything I want. My brother was not clever enough to detect that the old woman had merely refused the two pieces of money he had offered her in order to get more but he inquired if she could procure him the pleasure of seeing this lady. Willingly, she replied, 
and she will be charmed to marry you and to make you the master of all her wealth. So, pick up your money and follow me. Delighted at the thought that he had found so easily both a fortune and a beautiful wife, my brother asked no more questions. But concealing his purse with the money the lady had given him, in the folds of his dress, he set out joyfully with his guide. They walked for some distance, till the old woman stopped at a large house where she knocked. The door was opened by a young Greek slave, and the old woman led my brother across a well-paved court into a well-furnished hall. Here she left him to inform her mistress of his presence, and as the day was hot, he flung himself onto a pile of cushions and took off his heavy turban. In a few minutes, there entered a lady, and my brother perceived at the first glance that she was even more beautiful and more richly dressed than he had expected. He rose from his seat, but the lady signed him to sit down again and placed herself beside him. After the usual compliments had passed between them, she said, We are not comfortable here. Let us go into another room. And passing into a smaller chamber, apparently communicating with no other, she continued to talk to him for some time. Then rising hastily, she left him, saying, Stay where you are. I will come back in a minute. He waited as he was told, but instead of the lady, there entered a huge slave with a sword in his hand. Approaching my brother with an angry countenance, he exclaimed, What business have you here? His voice and manner were so terrific that Alnashar had not strength to reply, and allowed his gold to be taken from him, and even saber cuts to be inflicted on him without making any resistance. As soon as he was let go, he sank on the ground, powerless to move, though he still had possession of his senses. Thinking he was dead, the slave ordered the Greek slave to bring him some salt, and between them they rubbed it into his wounds, thus giving him acute agony, though he had the presence of mind to give no sign of life. They then left him, and their place was taken by the old woman, who dragged him to a trap door and threw him down into a vault, filled with the bodies of murdered men. At first the violence of his fall caused him to lose consciousness, but luckily the salt which had been rubbed into his wounds had by its smarting preserved his life, and little by little he regained his strength. At the end of two days he lifted the trapdoor during the night and hid himself in the courtyard till daybreak, when he saw the old woman leave the house in search of more prey. Luckily she did not observe him, and when she was out of sight he stole from this nest of assassins and took refuge in my house. I dressed his wounds and tended him carefully, and when a month had passed he was as well as ever. His one thought was how to be revenged on that wicked old hag, and for this purpose he had a purse made large enough to contain five hundred gold pieces, but filled it instead with bits of glass. This he tied round him with his sash, and, disguising himself as an old woman, he took a saber, which he hid under his dress. One morning, as he was hobbling through the streets, 
he met his old enemy prowling to see if she could find anyone to decoy. He went up to her and, imitating the voice of a woman, he said, Do you happen to have a pair of scales you could lend me? I have just come from Persia and have brought with me five hundred gold pieces, and I am anxious to see if they are the proper weight. Good woman, replied the old hag, you could not have asked anyone better. My son is a money-changer, and if you will follow me, he will weigh them for you himself. Only we must be quick, or he will have gone to his shop. So saying, she led the way to the same house as before, and the door was opened by the same Greek slave. Again my brother was left in the hall, and the pretended son appeared under the form of the slave. Miserable crone, he said to my brother, get up and come with me, and turned to lead the way to the place of murder. Alnashar rose too, and drawing the saber from under his dress, dealt the slave such a blow on his neck that his head was severed from his body. My brother picked up the head with one hand, and seizing the body with the other, dragged it to the vault, when he threw it in and sent the head after it. The Greek slave, supposing that all had passed as usual, shortly arrived with the basin of salt, but when she beheld Alnashar with the saber in his hand, she let the basin fall and turned to fly. My brother, however, was too quick for her, and in another instant her head was rolling from her shoulders. The noise brought the old woman running to see what was the matter, and he seized her before she had time to escape. Wretch, he cried, do you know me? Who are you, my lord? she replied, trembling all over. I have never seen you before. I am he whose house you entered to offer your hypocritical prayers. Don't you remember now? She flung herself on her knees to implore mercy, but he cut her in four pieces. There remained only the lady, who was quite ignorant of all that was taking place around her. He sought her through the house, and when at last he found her, she nearly fainted with terror at the sight of him. She begged hard for her life, which he was generous enough to give her, but he bade her to tell him how she had got into partnership with the abominable creatures he had just put to death. I was once, replied she, the wife of an honest merchant, and that old woman whose wickedness I did not know used occasionally to visit me. Madam, she said to me one day, we have a grand wedding at our house today. If you would do us the honor to be present, I am sure you would enjoy yourself. I allowed myself to be persuaded, put on my richest dress, and took a purse with a hundred pieces of gold. Once inside the doors, I was kept by force by that dreadful slave, and it is now three years that I have been here to my great grief. That horrible man must have amassed great wealth, remarked my brother. Such wealth, returned she, that if you succeed in carrying it all away, it will make you rich forever. Come and let us see how much there is. She led Alnashar into a chamber filled with coffers packed with gold, which he gazed at with an admiration he was powerless to conceal. Go, she said 
and bring men to carry them away. My brother did not wait to be told twice, and hurried out into the streets where he soon collected ten men. They all came back to the house. But what was his surprise to find the door open and the room with the chests of gold quite empty? The lady had been cleverer than himself and had made the best use of her time. However, he tried to console himself by removing all the beautiful furniture, which more than made up for the five hundred gold pieces he had lost. Unluckily, on leaving the house, he forgot to lock the door, and the neighbors, finding the place empty, informed the police, who next morning arrested Al-Nashar as a thief. My brother tried to bribe them to let him off, but far from listening to him, they tied his hands and forced him to walk between them to the presence of the judge. When they had explained to the official the cause of the complaint, he asked Al-Nashar where he had obtained all the furniture that he had taken to his house the day before. Sir, replied Al-Nashar, I am ready to tell you the whole story, but give, I pray you, your word that I shall run no risk of punishment. That I promise, said the judge. So my brother began at the beginning and related all his adventures and how he had avenged himself on those who had betrayed him. As to the furniture, he entreated the judge to at least allow him to keep part to make up for the five hundred pieces of gold which had been stolen from him. The judge, however, would say nothing about this and lost no time in sending men to fetch away all that Al-Nashar had taken from the house. When everything had been moved and placed under his roof, he ordered my brother to leave the town and never more to enter it on peril of his life, fearing that if he returned, he might seek justice from the caliph. Al-Nashar obeyed and was on his way to a neighboring city when he fell in with a band of robbers, who stripped him of his clothes and left him naked by the roadside. Hearing of his plight, I hurried after him to console him for his misfortunes and to dress him in my best robe. I then brought him back disguised under cover of night to my house, where I have since given him all the care I bestow on my other brothers. The Story of the Barber's Sixth Brother there now remains for me to relate to you the story of my sixth brother, whose name was Shakabak. Like the rest of us, he inherited a hundred silver drachmas from our father, which he thought was a large fortune. But through ill luck, he soon lost it all and was driven to beg. As he had a smooth tongue and good manners, he really did very well in his new profession, and he devoted himself specially to making friends with the servants in big houses, so as to gain access to their masters. One day he was passing a splendid mansion, with a crowd of servants lounging in the courtyard. He thought that, from the appearance of the house, it might yield a rich harvest, so he entered and inquired to whom it belonged. "'My good man, where do you come from?' replied the servant. "'Can't you see for yourself that it belongs to nobody but a barmicide?' for the Barmecides were famed for their liberality and generosity. My brother, hearing this, asked the porters, of whom there were several, if they would give him alms. 
they did not refuse, but told him politely to go in and speak to the master himself. My brother thanked them for their courtesy and entered the building, which was so large that it took him some time to reach the apartments of the Barmecide. At last, in a room richly decorated with paintings, he saw an old man with a long white beard sitting on a sofa, who received him with such kindness that my brother was emboldened to make his petition. My lord, he said, you behold in me a poor man who only lives by the help of persons as rich and generous as you. Before he could proceed further, he was stopped by the astonishment shown by the Barmecide. Is it possible, he cried, that while I am in Baghdad, a man like you should be starving? That is a state of things that must at once be put an end to. Never shall it be said that I have abandoned you, and I am sure that you on your part will never abandon me. My lord, answered my brother, I swear that I have not broken my fast this whole day. What, you are dying of hunger? exclaimed the Barmecide. Here, slave, bring water that we may wash our hands before meat. No slave appeared, but my brother remarked that the Barmecide did not fail to rub his hands as if the water had been poured over them. Then he said to my brother, Why don't you wash your hands too? And Shakabak, supposing that it was a joke on the part of the Barmecide, though he could see none himself, drew near and imitated his motion. When the Barmecide had done rubbing his hands, he raised his voice and cried, Set foot before us at once, we are very hungry. No food was brought, but the Barmecide pretended to help himself from a dish and carry a morsel to his mouth, saying as he did so, Eat, my friend, eat, I entreat. Help yourself as freely as if you were at home. For a starving man, you seem to have a very small appetite. Excuse me, my lord, replied Shakabak, imitating his gestures as before. I really am not losing time, and I do full justice to the repast. How do you like this bread? asked the Barmecide. I find it particularly good myself. Oh, my lord, answered my brother, who beheld neither meat nor bread. Never have I tasted anything so delicious. Eat as much as you want, said the Barmecide. I bought the woman who makes it for five hundred pieces of gold, so that I might never be without it. After ordering a variety of dishes, which never came, to be placed on the table, and discussing the merits of each one, the Barmecide declared that, having dined so well, they would now proceed to take their wine. To this my brother at first objected, declaring that it was forbidden. But on the Barmecide insisting that it was out of the question that he should drink by himself, he consented to take a little. The Barmecide, however, pretended to fill their glasses so often that my brother feigned that the wine had gone to his head and struck the Barmecide such a blow on the head that he fell to the ground. Indeed, he raised his hand to strike him a second time when the Barmecide cried out that he was mad upon which my brother controlled himself and apologized and protested that it was all the fault of the wine he had drunk. At this, the Barmecide, instead of being angry, began to laugh and embraced him heartily. I have long been seeking, he exclaimed, 
a man of your description, and henceforth my house shall be yours. You have had the good grace to fall in with my humor, and to pretend to eat and to drink when nothing was there. Now you shall be rewarded by a really good supper. Then he clapped his hands, and all the dishes were brought that they had tasted in imagination before and during the repast. Slaves sang and played on various instruments. All the while, Shakabak was treated by the barmecide as a familiar friend and dressed in a garment out of his own wardrobe. Twenty years passed by, and my brother was still living with the barmecide, looking after his house and managing his affairs. At the end of that time, his generous benefactor died without heirs, so all his possessions went to the prince. They even despoiled my brother of those that rightly belonged to him. And he, now as poor as he had ever been in his life, decided to cast in his lot with a caravan of pilgrims who were on their way to Mecca. Unluckily, the caravan was attacked and pillaged by the Bedouins, and the pilgrims were taken prisoners. My brother became the slave of a man who beat him daily, hoping to drive him to offer a ransom although, as Shakabak pointed out, it was quite useless trouble as his relations were as poor as himself. At length, the Bedouin grew tired of tormenting and sent him on a camel to the top of a high, barren mountain where he left him to take his chance. A passing caravan, on its way to Baghdad, told me where he was to be found, and I hurried to his rescue and brought him back in a deplorable condition to the town. This, continued the barber, is the tale I related to the caliph, who, when I had finished, burst into fits of laughter. Well were you called the silent, said he. No name was ever better deserved. But for reasons of my own, which it is not necessary to mention, I desire you to leave the town and never to come back. I had, of course, no choice but to obey, and traveled about for several years until I heard of the death of the caliph, when I hastily returned to Baghdad, only to find that all my brothers were dead. It was at this time that I rendered to the young cripple the important service of which you have heard, and for which, as you know, he showed such profound ingratitude that he preferred rather to leave Baghdad than to run the risk of seeing me. I sought him long from place to place, but it was only today, when I expected at least, that I came across him, as much irritated with me as ever. So saying, the tailor went on to relate the story of the lame man and the barber, which has already been told. When the barber, he continued, had finished his tale, we came to the conclusion that the young man had been right when he had accused him of being a great chatterbox. However, we wished to keep him with us and share our feast and we remained at table till the hour of afternoon prayer. Then the company broke up, and I went back to work in my shop. It was during this interval that the little hunchback, half drunk already, presented himself before me, singing and playing on his drum. I took him home to amuse my wife, and she invited him to supper. While eating some fish, a bone got caught into his throat, and in spite of all we could do, he died shortly. It was all so sudden that we lost our heads, and in order to divert suspicion from ourselves, 
we carried the body to the house of a Jewish physician. He placed it in the chamber of the purveyor, and the purveyor propped it up in the street, where it was thought to have been killed by the merchant. This, sire, is the story which I was obliged to tell to satisfy your highness. It is now for you to say if we deserve mercy or punishment, life or death. The Sultan of Kashgar listened with an air of pleasure which filled the tailor and his friends with hope. I must confess, he exclaimed, that I am much more interested in the stories of the barber and his brothers, and of the lame man, than in that of my own jester. But before I allow you all four to return to your homes, and have the corpse of the hunchback properly buried, I should like to see this barber who has earned your pardon, and as he is in this town, let an usher go with you at once in search of him. The usher and the tailor soon returned, bringing with them an old man who must have been at least ninety years of age. O oh, silent one, said the sultan, I am told that you know many strange stories. Will you tell some of them to me? Never mind my stories for the present, replied the barber. But will your highness graciously be pleased to explain why this Jew, this Christian, and this Muslim, as well as this dead body, are here? What business is that of yours? asked the sultan with a smile. But seeing that the barber had some reasons for his question, he commanded that the tale of the hunchback should be told him. It is certainly most surprising, cried he, when he had heard it all. But I should like to examine the body. He then knelt down and took the head on his knees, looking at it attentively. Suddenly, he burst into such loud laughter that he fell right backwards, and when he had recovered himself enough to speak, he turned to the sultan. The man is no more dead than I am, he said. Watch me. As he spoke, he drew a small case of medicines from his pocket and rubbed the neck of the hunchback with some ointment made of balsam. Next, he opened the dead man's mouth, and, by the help of a pair of pincers, drew the bone from his throat. At this, the hunchback sneezed, stretched himself, and opened his eyes. The sultan and all those who saw this operation did not know which to admire most. The constitution of the hunchback, who had apparently been dead for a whole night and most of one day, or the skill of the barber, whom everyone now began to look upon as a great man. His Highness desired that the story of the hunchback should be written down and placed in the archives beside that of the barber, so that they might be associated in people's minds to the end of time. And he did not stop there, for in order to wipe out the memory of what they had undergone, he commanded that the tailor, the doctor, the purveyor, and the merchant should each be clothed in his presence with a robe from his own wardrobe before they returned home. As for the barber, he bestowed on him a large pension and kept him near his own person. That was part seven of The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. Special thanks to Ginger Sands for our theme music, you can find more of Ginger's music at iTunes or on her website at www.gingersands.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's story, send me an email. I can be reached at 
Susan.Poulter, that's P-O-U-L-T-E-R, at Nashville.gov. Thanks for listening.